The Compulsory Diversion, An Old Baron's Yarn by Mor Yokai Read by Neslihan Stamboli This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org The Compulsory Diversion, An Old Baron's Yarn I wonder, my dear fellows, if any of you know the Countess Stefan Repay, the younger one, I mean, not the old lady, that little Creole princess, my little black-eyed kobold, as I call her. Mine, indeed. <laughs> I don't mean that, of course. That is only a façon de parler. All of us, my dear fellows, as you very well know, have sighed after her enough, at some time or other, but none of you have had, like me, the luck to travel at night with her in the same coach. Well, naturally, her maid was there too. Still, it was a great bit of luck all the same. But no more of such luck for me, thank you. One day, at her castle of Keregvar, it suddenly occurred to the countess, quite late in the evening, that the casino ball at Arad was coming off on the morrow, and she must be there at all hazards. No sooner said than done. The horses were put to at once, and, as there was nobody with her but me, she said, I pray you, my dear baron, be so good as to escort me to Arad. Well, when it came to, dear baron, what on earth could I say? Countess, Madeus, it is very dark. We shall only get upset and break our legs. And how can we dance with broken legs? We shall have to cross the three Kurish rivers. The bridge over one of them is sure to be crazy as usual. And in we shall plump. Then at Salenta, we shall have to pass through the deuce of a wood, full of robbers, and I shall never be able to defend you single-handed against the whole lot of them. And besides, what need is there to hurry? Early tomorrow morning, after a nice cup of tea, you have only to step into your carriage. Your four bay horses will fly with us to Arad, and by the evening you will be quite ready with your toilette. That's what I said. But you know how it always is. Try and persuade a woman not to do a thing, and she'll insist on doing it all the more. She didn't want to drive her horses to death, she said, and whoever heard of wanting to rest after a short journey like that? Besides, she loved so to travel by night. What with the stars and the frogs, it was so beautiful, so romantic, and much more such stuff. But bless you, that was a mere pretext. The fact was, she had suddenly got the idea into her darling little noddle, and nothing in heaven or earth could turn her from her purpose. Enfin, I was between two stools. I had either to go with her, or remain alone in the castle. Of course, I chose the former alternative, 
especially after she gave me permission to sit opposite to her in the coach. I enjoyed myself splendidly, I can tell you. The Countess, by degrees, absolutely loaded me with her favours. First of all, she put her handbag in my lap, to which she presently added a muff. Next, she hung a reticule upon my arm. Finally, she entrusted to me a couple of bandboxes. After that, she fell asleep. I could have asked anything I liked of her, especially when the coach stumbled and she awoke in terror and began asking for all her belongings one after another, dozing off again when she was quite sure they were all there. Later on, the lady's maid began to groan. Oh, Lord, how my head aches. Whereupon, I also pretended to fall asleep. Suddenly, we all started up in alarm. The coach had suddenly moved sideways and then come to a dead stop as if it had fallen into a ditch. My countess also awoke and asked, stupidly, what was the matter. The lackey leaped from the box and came to the carriage window. Your ladyship, I'm afraid we have lost our way. Well, what of that? said the countess. We can't stop here. There's a road in front of us, I suppose, and we're bound to arrive somewhere if we only follow it. Yes, but... Yes, but... What do you mean? The road must lead somewhere, I suppose. Saving your ladyship's presence, we're in the Salentar Wood. Well, the Salentar Wood is no trackless wilderness. We shall get to the end of it in a couple of hours. Yes, your ladyship, but the coachman is afraid. The coachman? What business has he to be afraid? There's nothing about that in his contract, is there? He's afraid of some mischief befalling your ladyship. What has the coachman to do with me, I should like to know? Here I thought it my duty to intervene. Countess, Madeus, this is no joke. This comes, you see, of nocturnal excursions. Here we are, camping out in the middle of a forest, and the robbers who abound in this forest will come and take our horses, our money, and our lives. I only wish I had a revolver. But the little demon only laughed, and, before I could prevent it, she had opened the coach door and leaped out. Oh, what a splendid night! How fragrant the forest is! How the glowworms sparkle in the grass! Have you no eyes, Baron? Eyes, indeed, when I couldn't see three paces before me for the darkness. But surely... I see something shining through the trees over there, she continued. My blood grew cold within me. We were approaching some robbers then, evidently. The coachman answered the question from his box with the voice of a man who was already being throttled. That, your ladyship, is the pothouse which the country people call a guest detaining charda. Guest detaining, bravo, the very thing for us. Let's hasten thither. I was desperate. For God's sake, Countess, what would you do? Why, that Charda is a notorious resort of thieves where they would kill the whole lot of us, a regular murder hall, 
whose landlord is hand in glove with all the ruffians of the district, and where numbers and numbers of people have come to an evil end. The naughty girl only laughed at me. She told me I had read all these horrors in the story books, and there was not a word of truth in any of them. She admitted, indeed, that if there had been another inn, she would have gone to that in preference. But as this was the only one, we had no choice. She then ordered the coachman to drive the horses along very gingerly, while she went before on foot to show him the way. Every lamentation and objection was useless. We had to stumble along in the direction of that cursed Charda, for she threatened to go alone if we were afraid to come too. It is a fact that that naughty little fairy was afraid of nothing. When we drew nearer to the Charda, a merry hullabalooing sort of music suddenly struck upon our ears though all the windows were closed by shutters. Mon Dieu, it's absolutely full of robbers. You see how it is, remarked the Countess mischievously. We started to go to a ball, and at a ball we have arrived. No one, you see, can avoid his fate. And thereupon, with appalling foolhardiness, she marched straight towards the door. For a moment, I really thought I should have turned tail, left her there, and made a bolt of it. But noblesse oblige. And besides, I couldn't, for Mademoiselle Césarine, the lady's maid, had gripped my arm so tightly that I was powerless to release myself. The poor creature was more than half dead with fright. At any rate, she was only half alive when we followed the countess together. Even outside the door, we could hear quite distinctly the wild dance music and the merry uproar proceeding from a parcel of men inside. But my countess was not a bit put out by it. Boldly, she opened the door and stepped into the charda. It was a large, long, dirty, whitewashed room where, in my first terror, I could see about fifty men dancing about. Subsequently, when I was able to count them, there turned out to be only nine of them, including the landlord, who did not dance, and three gypsies who provided the music. But it seemed to me that five stalwart ruffians were quite enough to deal with our little party. They were all tall fellows, who could easily hit the girders of the roof with their clenched fists, and strapping fellows too, with big, broad shoulders, their five muskets were piled up together in a corner. Well, we were in a pretty tight place, it seemed to me. The rascals, when they saw us, instantly left off dancing and seemed to be amazed at our audacity. But my countess said to them, with a charming smile, Forgive me, my friends, for interrupting your pastime, we have lost our way, and as we couldn't go any further in the dark, we have come here for shelter, if you will give it to us. At these words, one of the fellows, sprucer and slimmer a good deal than the others, gave his spiral moustache an extra twirl, took off his vagabond's hat, clapped his heels together, and made my countess a profound bow. He assured her 
she was not inconveniencing them in the least. On the contrary, they would be very glad of her society. I am the master here, he added. Yoji Fekete, the famous robber, by the way, at your ladyship's service. But who then is your ladyship? Before I could pull the countess's mantilla to prevent her from blurting out who she was, she had already replied, I am the Countess Repay from Kerekbar. Then I'm indeed fortunate, said the rascal. I knew the old count. He fired after me with a double musket on one occasion, though he did not hit me. Pray sit down, Countess. A pleasant introduction, I must say. The Countess sat down on a bench, the fellow beside her. Me? They didn't ask to take a seat at all. And where did your ladyship think of going on such a night? I winked at her. Don't tell him. We were going to Arad, to the casino ball. Adieu, all our jewels, I thought. Oh, then you have come here just at the nick of time. Your ladyship need not go a step further, for we're giving a ball here. If you do not despise our invitation, we have very good gypsy musicians. The Salantar band, you know. They can play splendid chardashes. The rascal didn't stand on ceremony in the least. But no sooner did they begin dashing off the chardash, than he threw his buttoned dolman half over his shoulder and seizing the countess round the waist, twirled her off amidst a lot of them. Another fellow immediately hastened up to Mademoiselle Césarine and ravished her away in a half-fainting condition. But she had no need to think of herself, for she was passed from one hand to another, so that her feet never touched the ground. As for my countess, she excelled herself. She danced with as much fire and vivacity as if she were sweeping over the waxed floor of the assembly rooms at Arad. Never have I seen her so amiable, so charming, as she was at that moment. I have seen Hungarian dances at other times, and have always been struck by their quaintness, but nobody ever showed me how much there was really in them as that good-for-nothing rascal showed me then. First of all, he paced majestically round with his partner, as if this were the proudest moment of his life, gazing haughtily down upon her from over his shoulder. Then he would shout down the music when at its loudest, and it was pretty loud too, and emerge from the midst of the throng after his partner. She, all the time, swaying modestly backwards and forwards before him, like a butterfly which touches every flower but lights on none, and indeed, I'm only speaking the truth when I say that her feet never seemed to touch the earth. The fellow, foppishly enough, would keep bending towards her as if he were about to embrace her on the spot, and then would stop short, stamping with one foot and flinging back his head haughtily, alluring the enchanting little fairy hither and thither after him. Sometimes he would rush right after her, as if about to cast himself upon her bosom, 
and then, with a sudden twirl, would be far away from her again, and only the glances of their eyes showed that they were partners. Presently, as if in high dudgeon, he would turn away from his partner, plant himself right in front of the gypsy musicians, and prance furiously up and down before them, and after thus dancing away his anger, suddenly patter back to the countess, and seize and whirl her round and round, as if he were a hurricane, and she a leaping flame. During this spacious pastime, I was constantly agonized by the thought that perhaps this mad rogue, in his excitement, might permit himself some unbecoming demonstration towards the countess. The temptation, you know, was great. The countess was entirely in his power. The fellow was a gallows bird, with the noose half round his neck already. An extra misdeed or two, more or less, could do him no further harm. I was firmly resolved that if he insulted the countess by the least familiarity, I would make a rush for the piled-up muskets, seize one of them, and shoot the villainous trifler dead. I affirm on my honour that this I was firmly resolved to do. But there was no necessity for it. The dancers finished the three dances, the robber chief politely conducted his partner back to her place and respectfully kissed her hand after thanking her heartily for her kindness. And with that, he approached me and amicably tapping me on the shoulder, inquired, Well, old chap, can't you dance? Fancy calling me old chap. Thank you, I said. I cannot. More's the pity and back he went to the countess. I beg your ladyship's pardon, he began, for not being sufficiently prepared for the reception of such distinguished guests, but I hope you will indulgently accept what we have to offer you. It is not much, but it is good. So he meant to give us not only the bowl, but the supper after it. And a splendid banquet it was, I must say, a large cauldron, full of stewed calf's flesh, was produced, put upon the long table, and we all took our places round it. Of plates and dishes, there was no trace. Everyone used his own claws, by which I mean to say that, with a hunk of bread in one hand and a clasp knife in the other, we fished up our marrow bones from the cauldron itself. As for my countess, she fell too, as if she had been starving for three days. The rubber chief fished up for her, with his brass-studded clasp knife, the reddest morsels of flesh, they literally swam in pepper, and piled them up on her white roll. It was something splendid, I can tell you. Suddenly it occurred to the rascal that I was not eating. Fall too, old chap, said he. Stalling goods make the fattest dishes, you know. Nice company, eh? Thank you. I can't eat it. It's too much peppered, I said. All right, so much the more for us. The wine, naturally, was sent round in the flask. Not a glass was to be seen. Yoji Fekete, as is the way with boars, 
first drank from the flask himself, and then, having wiped the mouth of it with his wide shirt sleeve, presented it to the countess. And bless my heart, she took it and drank out of it. An amazing woman, really. Then the flippant rogue turned to me and offered me a drink. Come, drink away, old chap, he said. Why always harp upon my grey hairs? For of course you're going to make a night of it. Thank you, I cannot drink. I'm a Tito Taylor, I said. I was now thoroughly convinced that they were going to drink themselves mad drunk, preparatory to knocking our brains out. And indeed, they did drink a cask of wine between the five of them, yet when they rose from the table, not one of them so much as staggered. While they were treating the gypsies, the robber chief approached me again. Well, old chap, devil take him with his old chap. So you neither eat, nor drink, nor dance, eh? How then do you amuse yourself? Do you play cards? And with that, he produced a pack from his pocket. So he wanted to find out how much money I had in my pocket, eh? I know no game at cards. Well, I'll pretty soon teach you one. It's quite easy. Look, now, I put one card here and another card there. You lay upon this and I lay upon that. And whichever of us draws a court card of the corresponding suit takes the stake. The rascal was actually teaching me Landsknecht and I was obliged to pretend to learn from him. What could I do? I was obliged to sit down and play with him. I had in my pocket a lot of coppers. I thought I might as well risk them, so I put them on the table. What? We don't play for browns here. We're not bumpkins. Here's the bank. And with that, he flung upon the table a whole heap of silver florins and gold ducats. I also had a few small silver coins in my purse, and with much fear and trembling, I placed one of them on the first card. He dealt out, and I won the stake. The rascal paid up. Not for the world would I have taken up the money. I left it where it was. A second and a third time I won. Again, I did not gather my stakes. The fourth Fifth, sixth time, every time, in fact, fortune smiled on me. I began to perspire. It is a frightful situation when a man plays cards with a scoundrel and wins his money continually. The seventh stake also was mine. By this time, a whole army of silver coins stood before me. A cold sweat began to trickle down my temples, why couldn't I be as lucky as this at Pressburg, at the club, during the session of the diet? Again, I stake the whole lot, inwardly praying that I might lose it all. In vain, for the eighth time, I won. I was a doomed man. There could be no doubt about it. The rascal smiled and said, Well, old chap, you cannot very well be in love with the pretty countess, for you win at cards so shamefully. 
The rascal even dared to chaff me. I trembled in every limb when the night deal began. Yes, sure enough, again it fell to my share. The robber struck the table with his fist and laughed aloud. Well, old chap, he cried, if you go on winning like this, I shall lose the whole county of Bihar in an hour's time. And with that, he pocketed what money remained and raised from the table. I took my courage in both hands and ventured to offer him the money I had won. The fellow looked me up and down as haughtily as a hidalgo. What do you take me for? said he. Pick up your winnings at once, or I'll pitch you and them out of doors. Good heavens! What was I to do with all this money? Money enough to be murdered for? And I had no doubt they would beat me to death for it presently. I took it all and gave it to the gypsy musicians. And only after I had done it did I reflect what a foolish thing it was to do. For how could I more clearly have betrayed the fact that I was indeed a man of unlimited means? The silly gypsies thereupon gathered round me and insisted upon playing me an air. What was my favourite air? they asked. I got out of it by referring them to the countess. I told them to play her favourite air, and she would accompany it with her voice. The countess certainly did not require much pressing. She began to sing with her delightful siren voice. Summer and winter, the pusta's my dwelling. And so sweetly, so enchantingly did she sing that I quite forgot my surroundings and fancied I was in a private box at the Budapest Casino. I actually began to applaud. The robber chief also applauded. And now, he said, he would teach the countess his favorite song. And then the madcap rascal roared out some rustic melody, which certainly I had never heard before. Well, old chap, he said when he had finished, it is now your turn to sing us something. I was in a terrible pother. I sing? I sing in that hour of mortal anguish? I, who didn't know a single note except home, sweet home? I can't sing at all, I said. And that wicked, frivolous woman began laughing at me frightfully, as involuntarily I fell humming an air from some opera. I may mention I have a horrible, hoarse sort of voice, not unlike a peacock's. If you won't sing, she said to me in French, we shall all be insulted, see, if we don't. What could I do? With the dart of terror in my heart and the pressure of mortal fear in my throat, I piped forth my home, sweet home. I felt all along I was making a woeful mess of it. Up to the middle of the song, the countess behaved with great decorum, but just as I was working my way up to the most pathetic part and brought out a most cruel flourish, she burst out laughing and the whole band of robbers began to laugh with her, till at last I also was obliged to smile, though, oddly enough, 
There was no joke in it at all, as far as I could see. Then they fell to dancing again. The countess was indefatigable, and so it went on till broad daylight. When the sun shone through the windows, she said to the robber how obliged she was for the entertainment, but enough was as good as a feast, and would he, therefore, put to the horses and let us be off. Well, now at last, we shall all be knocked on the head straightway, I thought. The robber went out, hunted up the coachman and the lackey, gave the necessary orders, and came back to say the carriage was awaiting us. No doubt they meant to shoot us down on the road. I got into the carriage far more alarmed than I was when I got out of it. It was a suspicious circumstance that he did not separate me from my companion. Evidently, they intended to make sure of us and murder us altogether. The rascal himself took horse, galloped along by the side of our carriage, and conducted us to the turnpike road so as to put us on our way. Then he raised his cap, wished us a merry evening, and galloped back again. Only when we came to Zerind did I venture to believe that I was alive. Only then did I begin to reproach the Countess for involving us in an adventure which might have ended miserably enough. Suppose, I said, these rascals had not been afraid of me. Why, then they might have practiced all sorts of sorties upon her, and then to dance with vagabonds in a charda till dawn of day. Unpardonable. All the way to Arad, I was indulging myself with the hope that if I was very civil to the countess, she would not give me away by revealing the secret of this disreputable adventure. At six o'clock we reached Arad, and as we dismounted at the door of the reception room, she told three of my acquaintances what had befallen us. Of course, everyone speedily knew of our misadventure, so I was not even able to tell the story my own way. And again, she was the loveliest woman at the ball, and she knew it and that was one of the chief reasons why she came. It is true she did not dance a step. She excused herself by saying she was tired to death. I can well believe it. From midnight to dawn she had danced nineteen chardashes. Why, I, who hadn't danced at all, could hardly stand on my legs. As for me, I hastened to the card room, now that fortune has embraced you, hug her tight, I thought to myself. At one table they were playing Landsknecht. Now's your time, make a plunge, I said to myself. But I had the most cursed luck. I lost a thousand florins straight off. Fortune, evidently, only pursues you when she sees that you're afraid of her. Six months later... I came across a newspaper in which was an account of the summary conviction and execution by hanging of the famous robber chief Yoji. I took the newspaper to the Countess Stefan Repay and showed it to her. Fancy, she said, when she had read the case through. And such a good dancer as he was too.
End of The Compulsory Diversion, An Old Baron's Yarn by Mor Yokai Read by Nislihan Stamboli